Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we speak with legendary photographer Stephen Klein. Yeah, I think my intention always is to provoke people to look at a picture and ask questions about the pictures and ask questions about themselves and to make them think about something. Plus, why FIFA decided to host the World Cup in Qatar. A few flint-hearted skeptics did suggest, however, that FIFA's decision may have been tilted by less lofty motivations. FIFA, corrupt and venal, the very idea, etc. All that and much more in the next hour on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And the first story of the show, of course, is about the World Cup. On the Foreign Desk Explainer this week, Andrew Muller asks why would FIFA host the World Cup in a country that not only has a hostile climate for sport and abuses human rights, but has also never taken part in the competition. He explains. This Sunday, the 2022 World Cup will kick off in Albait Stadium on the outskirts of Alcor City in Qatar. The first match will see Qatar, the hosts, take on Ecuador. Qatar versus Ecuador is not, to understate matters audaciously, a fixture possessed of mythical luster. We are a long way here from Germany versus the Netherlands, or England versus Argentina, or really anybody versus anybody. Qatar will be playing at their first World Cup. Ecuador are playing at their fourth, but at only one of their previous three have they struggled out of the group stages. In 2006, when they were beaten in the round of 16 by England, a David Beckham free kick thwarting whatever dreams Ecuador may have dared nurture. David Beckham. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Qatar was named as the 2022 World Cup host in 2010 in the same announcement that granted the 2018 tournament to Russia, almost as if FIFA were hoping to get two choruses of incredulous jeering out of the way at once. So the world has had 12 years to get used to the idea of a World Cup in Qatar, a country half the size of Wales, which had, when it was awarded the tournament, roughly the population of Minsk. Plus a climate brutally inhospitable to outdoor exertion, a human rights record difficult to contemplate without an amount of wincing, and zero footballing tradition to speak of. Qatar has at least since made some progress in the latter department, the high point winning the 2019 Asian Cup, beating Japan in the final, credit where due, and so forth. As for the others, well, we'll get to those presently. What we first need to consider is what FIFA was thinking. And it was the right decision, you think, for FIFA to take the tournament to Qatar. Not for everybody, but, uh, but uh, for me, I vote for Qatar because I think it was nice to go in another part of the world with, uh, with uh, 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 people who never received the World Cup. At the time, FIFA explained the award of the World Cup to Qatar with an amount of breezy flannel about it being high time the Middle East had a go at staging the Global Games Paramount event, pitching it as a sort of overdue sequel to South Africa, hosting in 2010, which had been the first World Cup held in that region. 
A few flint-hearted sceptics did suggest, however, that FIFA's decision may have been tilted by less lofty motivations. FIFA, corrupt and venal, the very idea, etc. FIFA did commission an inquiry into such aspersions, which cleared Qatar of any nefariousness. Who cooperated with the FIFA inquiry? The English. Yes, Great no question. one except the English and the Australians, and definitely not the Russians mm. or the Qataris. But which, amusingly, did take a swipe at England's Football Association for overstepping the mark in its efforts to win the favour of a particular FIFA official for England's bid to host the 2018 World Cup. Though Qatar certainly spent lavishly on its bid, it was not found to have directly bought votes. There was a thing with Qatari football administrator and FIFA executive committee member Mohammed bin Hammam seeking to purchase support for his attempt to become FIFA president, but this was deemed unrelated to the World Cup bid and bin Hammam was banned from football for life. Uh, have you ever tried to buy votes? Uh, I never intended to do so all my life. Did, did, did you ever give any money to those officials in the no, Caribbean? Nobody, nobody, nobody can claim that. And there have been various things with the 22 FIFA executives who awarded Qatar the World Cup. 17 of them have since been on the receiving end of bans, indictments, investigations or accusations. FIFA's then-president, Sepp Blatter, is currently banned from football. I am sorry that I am, as president of FIFA, this punching ball... And I'm sorry for, for football, I'm sorry. But I'm also sorry about me, how I'm treated in this world. FIFA's then vice president, Jack Warner, is fighting extradition from Trinidad and Tobago to the United States. I tried to get regime change when I was there through Bin Hammam. It did not work out to my and my family's detriment. And I'm saying very, very, very far from Sir You can look up the others yourself. Even if, however, Qatar behaved entirely scrupulously in acquiring the World Cup, honestly, Your Honour, we had no idea of the wretched cast of pirates and rogues we were dealing with, there are several other reasons why it remains ridiculous that Qatar is hosting it. There is the treatment of the workers who built the fabulous stadiums in which this World Cup will be played. The figure of 6,500 deaths of migrant workers, which is frequently bandied, is debatable. That is the total from hundreds of thousands of migrant workers from five countries who died in Qatar between 2010 and 2021, whether working on the World Cup or not, whether from work-related mishap or not. Qatar claims that 37 people have died on World Cup construction sites and only three of those from work-related accidents. The International Labour Organization claims 50 deaths in 2021 alone and nearly 40,000 injuries. By way of contrast, working on the 2012 London Olympics cost nobody their life. It is indisputably the case that many, if not most, of this World Cup's workers have been remunerated and accommodated miserably. Sujan would often complain about the conditions in Qatar, the heat, the gruelling work, that he wasn't receiving the agreed wage, but he often had to wait months to be paid. If Qatar can afford to spend north of $200 billion hosting the World Cup, it can afford to pay people better than 50 bucks a week. And then there's the fact that any gay football fan inclined to attend will, at the very least, have had to think about the wisdom of doing so. 
Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar and Qatari police have form for hassling, detaining and abusing gay people. Do you think gay is haram? It's haram. I am not big, one big Muslim, but it's haram, why? Because of damage in the mind. That right there should disqualify any putative host of any allegedly inclusive global event. Qatar has endured considerable criticism for all of the above and will endure more, and rightly so, which prompts the question of why Qatar bid for the World Cup in the first place. The answers are all the obvious ones. Prestige, influence, recognition, and maybe, who knows, even an amount of pure-hearted inclination to hospitality. At the very real risk of echoing an observation made in this space about Russia's hosting of the 2018 World Cup, an even more obviously absurd and monstrous decision by FIFA, the hazard of inviting the whole world to pay attention to you is that the whole world pays attention to you. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Also in the curator, we have the second part of a special World Cup-themed Global Countdown. And this week I looked at the top songs from the countries in Group C and D. Uh, so basically, I'm mimicking uh, the World Cup groups. Uh, as you know, I have a feeling perhaps you might not be the biggest World <laughs> Cup fan, but each group has four countries in it. Last week, we started with groups A and B. Um, you know, I was explaining to Emma that I would choose one song from each group and they will go through the semifinals. And the rules are the following. I look at the number one song in the country. It needs to be from a local artist. If the local artist is not a number one, I go for number two until I find uh, a local artist. So last week, the Netherlands and Iran went through the next round with a very powerful song, a very a protest song. And today we're looking at group C and D. All I can say, it's going to be very diverse. And I wonder who, which one you're going to like. And of course, at the end of the segment, I'll say which one is going to the next round. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> a lot of rules here. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to nod. <laughs> just enjoy. Just surf the, the wave. Yeah. So what are we hearing first? We are actually heading to Argentina. Funnily enough, we just heard there from Lucinda. And it, it is true, uh, Georgina, Argentina, they're fanatic for the World Cup. Perhaps even more so than Brazil. But what is the number one song in their charts? I see there is a female rapper. Her name is La Joaquí. And that just shows how hip-hop is perhaps one of the most important genres in Argentina at the moment. A lot of female rappers as well. Uh, we're going to have a, a listen to this track by La Joaquí. It's called Dos Besitos, Two Little Kisses. Let's have a listen. <laughs> So 
So you can see, Georgina, I said Argentinian rap. I mean, it's it's their very own hip-hop, right? They're different beats. There's some kind of local elements from uh, local Argentinian music as well. I thought it was quite enjoyable, that track. Next, we're going to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, and we have one of the biggest Saudi pop stars, if I may say. His name's Abdul Majid Abdallah. And he actually returned to the stage this year. I think he had a little break of five years. But he's huge in the Middle East. I mean, he's definitely a pop star. He's 60 years old as well and he's still doing very well. He just released a new album and the track we're going to hear is a very beautiful ballad called Welcome to My Soul by Abdul Majid Abdallah. <laughs> Oh, I rather like that. It's quite nice, right? I said a ballad, but there's something quite central to it as mm. well. Mm. Uh, very good track from Saudi Arabia. We're heading to Mexico now as well. And it's interesting, Georgina, this song, there's not many kind of Mexican tracks that go to the top 10 in the uh, top 100 in the US. But this song did reach that. Uh, they are Grupo Frontera. They have a, a Mexican origin, but they're based in Texas. Of course, there's a huge connection there. It's a romantic track. Of course, they're wearing those, those hats, you know. It, it's a proper ballad. Perhaps you should dance close to someone you love. <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, the song is called No Se Va, Don't Go by Grupo Frontera. I find it quite simple and raw, but clearly it hits a mark with with Mexicans. It's a nice track. It became is. a viral sensation. Uh, now, this is the last one in Group C, and it's Poland. It's Poland. I was surprised, actually, the number one, because the Polish, they love electronic music. But the number one is very much not electronic. She's kind of their own indie pop queen uh, there in Poland. It's a very beautiful ballad about smiling and hugging. We are different, like two drops of pure water. I don't know if drops of water are different, but yeah, according to her lyrics, it is. <laughs> Let's have a listen to Sana with Nothing Twice. <laughs> You know, that reminds me of that Swedish group, First Aid Kit, a bit. Oh, yes. Um, it's got that sort of slight country twang going on. Very gentle, right? Yeah. Uh, so very different. I mean, from Argentinian rap to Polish ballads, it's, it's kind of a strong group. It would be difficult to choose. But let's, shall we go to Group B now? Let's. It's France. It's a very exciting music market. Uh, and, and again, if you look at the French charts, it's, it's mainly French artists, which I think is remarkable. And hip-hop is also huge in France. Uh, the number one, he's one of the biggest names in hip-hop in France. But this track is a little bit more melodic than usual. And he said that in an interview. He doesn't want just the rap fans to enjoy his music. He wants also pop fans, rock fans. Uh, let's have a listen. This is Gazo with Die. Je crois que je t'évite alors que je m'aille. 
Elle veut savoir je suis dans quel pays Dis où tu veux qu'on se voie Et je te donnerai ce que tu veux de moi Jusqu'à ce que je taille Mission, il va falloir que j'y aille Love that. I like the melody actually at the end. A really great track. And be ready for Australia, Georgina. Don't start crying just now, okay? Because actually there is positive stories in the end. His name is Dean Lewis. He's an Australian singer-songwriter. The song is called How Do I Say Goodbye? It was dedicated to his father, which was diagnosed with cancer. But it's interesting. When you see the video, it's a very emotional one. You think the worst might have happened. But thankfully, his father entered in remission. And I think he's well actually but he said that every time he sings the song he still thinks about his father so it's a beautiful track uh, let's have a listen Dean Lewis How Do I Say Goodbye So how do I say goodbye Someone who's been with me for my whole damn life You gave me my name and the color of your eyes See your face when I look at mine We're very sad here, but it's all well. Beautiful track, nevertheless. It is very sad. I, I don't want to make you sad, Georgina. <laughs> but don't worry, the next track I think is a little bit more upbeat. And again, hip hop is the genre of the moment all around the world. But again, with a lot of differences because we're heading to Denmark. Uh, Gilly is one of the biggest names in Danish rap. But with his new album that's coming out soon, he's definitely one to kind of broaden out again, same as Gazo, but perhaps a little bit more than Gazo, because this song is actually very poppy. There are a lot of piano loops and kind of, you know, it's very upbeat. Uh, and he invited another Danish singer to sing with him, Savels. Uh, so let's have a listen to The World Awakens, representing Denmark. pick up on something you said there about hip-hop you were saying it's really popular all over the world and um, I just did an interview with Christopher Riley who's written a book about hip-hop and he really explains why that is and how mm. it's it's this kind of political movement that that a whole kind of group of people have been oppressed really that it's very difficult to get those those um, those lives out in front of everybody else. They're they're talking about a, a, um, a circumstances that that not everybody lives. And I just anyway, if people are interested, they can listen to it on 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 Monocle Reads with Christopher Riley. That's fantastic. I'll definitely do that, Georgina, because it's true. It's a, it's a global phenomenon. It's Argentina. It's Denmark. It's France. It is, and actually, it is also our next country, Tunisia. Uh, he's a big name in the Tunisian music scene. Uh, his name is Samara. The track is Galbi, is our last track for today. Let's have a listen. And again, very different. Hip-hop, it's not all the same. You heard the Argentinian one with a lot of kind of Latin American rhythms. Mm. This one clearly is a more of a Matt Magrab vibe as well. So yeah, it's, it is hip-hop, but very different from country to country. So who are your winners? Okay, 
the winners are. They're very valid winners here, but I have to choose only one from each group. From Group C, Argentina will go through. I think the rise of female hip-hop is a very important and fun track. Uh, they're good in football and good in music as well. From Group D, that was a tough one, I have to say. I was a little bit divided, but I think for the innovation and trying to look for different audiences, the prize goes to Denmark uh, with Gilly. Uh, so those are the winners. Argentina and Denmark, they will join the Netherlands and Iran in the future semifinals here on the Global Countdown. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24. And now we have Darcy Packett, an American film critic and a subtitle translator based in Seoul, who worked on the Oscar-winning Korean film Parasite. He originally started focusing on Korean cinema as a way to learn the language, but after launching his blog about the genre, his film career took off. Darcy was in London for the London Korean Film Festival. He stopped by a Midori house to tell Monaco's Lara Kramer about the booming Korean film industry and his joy when Parasite won Best Picture at the Oscars. You know, for years, I've seen the Korean film industry kind of grow and all these interesting films that have come out over the years, but it's always been really difficult to have the rest of the world really notice, you know, the things that are going on in Korea. And then to have one film break through, I mean, not only to get a nomination or to uh, receive some of the other Oscars, but to take home Best Picture was just mind-blowing. That was a huge moment. But in general, it seems the Korean film industry has been on a massive roll. It's true. I, I think the quality has been there for a little while, but certainly... You know, you need a certain amount of momentum in order to reach viewers in other countries and to convince them to give a chance to, uh, you know, works from places that they've never been or they're not familiar with. But Korea has required, acquired a reputation as being a place that is vibrant in terms of its popular culture. You know, certainly, you know, TV dramas have been very successful for many years, especially in Asia, but, you know, it's spreading around the world and they're finding more and more fans. And so with films as well. There have been several other you know, breakthroughs over the years. I mean, years ago there was Old Boy, which, you know, attracted a lot of attention. And I remember seeing Stephen King tweeting about Train to Busan and becoming very excited because it just seemed unreal. In recent years, it's just, it's accelerated. So, you know, Squid Game was just incredible and Parasite as well. As a translator, I, I wondered what your thoughts were. I remember when Squid Game first came out, the whole conversation, at least in, you know, a lot of international communities and English-speaking countries especially, was, do you watch Squid Game with the dubbing or the subtitles on? <laughs> I know. It's it's kind of fascinating that people are given the option and that there are a lot of countries in Europe that just kind of prefer dubbing and, you know, it's the standard to watch a dubbed version. and then But on Netflix, it's not really established what the standard is. I mean, certainly it's a very different experience, and it affects the translation as well. There was a lot of controversy about the choice of translation for this Korean word, oppa, which literally means older brother, but people use it in a lot of different contexts with people that they're not related to. And in the dubbed version, they used the translation old man. And actually, the reason they did that was just because the O sound, when you're translating dubbed works, you have to make the mouth shape correspond to the original language so that when the actor makes an O with his or her lips, then you need an O. <laughs> and so that's why it's old man. You know, it's not because they thought this was the most accurate or, you know, representative translation for that. Uh, with subtitles, thankfully, we don't have to worry about the shape of the mouth. <laughs> we can, uh, I mean, there are a lot of 
restrictions in terms of subtitle translation, but that's one that we don't have to worry about. I would imagine timing is probably a bigger issue because you don't want to give away what something's about to happen. I hate that in subtitles. I know. <laughs> I'm very conscious of that because actually if you're not careful, like, you know, a reaction shot no longer is a reaction shot because the audience is getting the information too late or in the wrong order. And, you know, Korean has a very different word order than English. Uh, so it does make it a challenge. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English. But if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness in order to get the timing of it right. You've also translated the upcoming film Broker, which was in competition at this year's Cannes Film Festival. The director is Japanese. It's a Korean film, but I imagine that maybe added a few extra challenges as you were doing the subtitles. Yeah, I mean, for years I've been a fan of Koreeda. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is his first time shooting a film in Korea, in Korean. Uh, director Koreeda speaks a little bit of Korean and some English as well. And so there was a lot of translation involved in the writing of the screenplay and then translating it into Korean and shooting it in Korean. When the project came to me, initially I was asked to translate the screenplay, and so I did that uh, on my own. And then for the subtitles, because they're is a lot that you need to kind of check with the director and to make sure that intent of the director is expressed in the subtitles. We found it more efficient to work by email in this case. There was a, uh, an employee at the production company who speaks Korean, English, and Japanese fluently. And so he sat down with the director and explained everything in detail and all the nuance that was in the English. So after a series of back and forth, then we kind of settled on the final translation. But it was a challenge because he's a director who he makes very emotional films. And, you know, you have to kind of pitch it the right way in English and make sure that you don't make it too emotional or non-emotional. You have to pitch it kind of exactly at the level that he's doing it at. As Korean films are being recognized more on the world stage, and there's obviously an awareness of international audiences, are you seeing that the content is also maybe being reshaped more for that? It's a really interesting question because, you know, there was a time when Korean producers and directors just thought of the international market as a, a bonus. <laughs> you made the film for the Korean audience, and if it worked internationally, then that was great. It was kind of an unexpected paycheck that you received. Of course, now everyone's very aware of the international potential for Korean cinema. It's an interesting question, though, because if you set out to target global audiences. You know, your concept of the audience is very abstract. Whereas on the other hand, if you make a film that's targeting the Korean audience, I think it's much easier for Korean filmmakers and producers to visualize that audience. And so in a way, I think that specificity helps in creating a, a tighter script and a script that has more interest. Even if you're targeting this uh, content at a global market, then uh, it might be best to really keep the Korean audience in mind initially and then just kind of market it as strongly as you can. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And on the stack this week, I had the pleasure to speak with one of my favorite photographers ever, Stephen Klein. He just released his first monograph. He stopped by Midori House and we had a lovely chat. 
First of all, Stephen, such a pleasure talking to you. I am a big fan. I've been following your work for years. And before we talk about the book, I mean, what I like about your work, it's so cinematic. It gives you the sense of fantasy, which I have to be honest, when I read magazines, I mean, not all of them, I'm missing a little bit of that. So this book is almost like a tribute to all those amazing imagery that you've done as well. Is that, is that what you want to portray in your work, uh, the sense of fantasy? Yeah, I think my intention always is to provoke people to look at a picture and ask questions about the pictures and ask questions about themselves and to make them think about something and to provoke ideas in different ways. I think just to show a dress on a page is kind of like you could see that online today when you watch a fashion show. So part of the reason why I did the book is I think a lot of the magazines today aren't doing journalistic and idea stories that have narratives attached to them or bigger ideas. So I thought it was a good time to put the collection of work together in one book. Absolutely. And it's a beautiful, I mean, people have to say it's a heavy book as well. There's a plenty of pages in here. I think it's more the papers, a good yeah. quality paper, so it's heavy, but it's not like a gigantic book. So I think it's heavy, but reasonable to carry. And coated as well. So even some of the pictures, you can feel it. Yeah, what I wanted to do is I like the idea, especially the one on the cover, to feel more like photographs. And I actually used a lot of my original prints. So it's not, it's like, through the years of working, I worked with film and then went to digital, and a lot of images are produced from film stills. The one on the cover actually is from a film camera, a digital film camera, for a project I did called Fetish Heels for the Brooklyn Museum. So that's an actual still. So there's many different formats, and on the paper, it's actually varnished, so it looks like as close to a real photograph as possible. I love that. But Stephen, compared, you know, to photo shoots these days, I mean, in the past, there was much higher budgets as well, right? I mean, how, how do you think it changed? Why this kind of, the sense of exuberance a little bit have been lost in a way? Partially, I think, because of social media and the internet. I think because so many fashion brands are advertising online that magazines no longer have the amount of money that's generated from advertising. So therefore, the budgets have been cut. A lot of staff as well from magazines have been cut. Most of the people that I've worked with in this book have also probably been laid off or somehow not working for the magazines anymore. So I think that has an effect on the budgets. I mean, budgets were always difficult to manage because a lot of my shoots are big productions, but I think even now it's even more difficult than before with photographers' fees, with... The, production expenses and, and overall ideas people will still want. They're asking me to do the same pictures I did before, but for, you know, 90% less in production value. And that can be. That can it's be. It's difficult. Yeah, it is. And I have something very curious. You have this relationship with stars, and, you know, let's talk about Madonna because that's the... I mean, one of the first kind of works that, that you've done that, I, you know, I felt fascinated, still inspires me to this day. I can see a picture and say, that's a Stephen Klein picture. But when you're working with someone like Madonna, you know, she's she knows what she's doing. She, she's, you know, she knows exactly her, her imagery, how she wanted to be. How do you put actually your kind of stamp on someone like Madonna, for example? Because um, it feels very Stephen Klein, but also Madonna, you know? I think, well, the first time we worked together, we collaborated, but it was 
basically she walked into my studio. We had a lot of exchanges and communication about the idea of her doing ecstatic process. But I think after our first shoot, it was very successful. We, she gained a lot of trust from me, and I think that we became good collaborators because without the trust and without the love in anything you do, I think that it's not possible. So the thing is, is that it's interesting because people, when they've walked into my studio and that aren't so connected with her or her image, they'll see a picture of her and not even know it's her. And to me, that's successful because the thing is, I do try to take the celebrity out of celebrities. And I think Mm -hmm. even in the book, when I edited the book, there were several pictures, one in particular from Rio, actually, Mm -hmm. that was on the cover of W that was actually showing her face full, you know, a full face picture facing the camera. And I showed her the pictures for the book and a lot of the pictures from the book are from her back. And she actually took that picture out and she said it was too commercial. So I think she has a she's a great admirer of great photography and fine art photography and she appreciates good work and I think that in that way she's a great collaborator with me because we both have a love for photography and filmmaking. You're listening to the curator. And now, a nice recipe from cookbook author and broadcaster Alice Zaslavsky. She shares a recipe for an easy and tasty pasta dish. I'm Alice Zaslavsky. I'm a broadcaster, cookbook author and vigilante from Melbourne, Australia. And my new book is The Joy of Better Cooking, which helps to encourage enthusiastic eaters to learn that they don't need to be a good cook in order to enjoy cooking. They just need to know that every time they get into the kitchen, they get better. And one of the recipes in the book that I think is an absolute knockout and I make on a fortnightly basis is almost like an in-case-of-emergency break into pantry. It's the pantry puttanesca, which is a pasta dish uh, which incorporates a lot of tins, so tinned tomatoes, tinned tuna, you've got your olives and your capers, you've got your parmesan in the in the fridge and you've got your dried pasta and you put all of that together uh, and it just really is so much much greater than the sum of its parts. So the way that I really like to think about this dish is that it's very textural. Uh, the the capers are the first thing that's fried. You want those capers to be like crunchy little plant-based anchovies. And in fact, you can make the dish plant-based if you want to as well by taking out the tuna <laughs> and going heavier on the capers. And then uh, you, while the pasta is boiling, once you've fried off the capers, you keep that same sort of salty, briny oil in the pan and you fry off your olives because something really magical happens when you fry olives. They become really meaty and quite nutty. So you've got your nutty, meaty olives with those little burnished bits and then you add in your tomato sauce and your garlic, go heavy on the garlic and you start to cook that down and it does start to kind of uh, become quite jammy. You can add a little bit of sugar. If you're using Italian tomatoes, you don't need to, you don't tend to need sugar, but if you're using tomatoes and you taste them and they're quite acidic, just a pinch of sugar really cheats it. That's a nonna's trick. (laughs) And then right as the pasta has cooked, you toss in your tins tins of tuna, stir it all around for the tuna just to kind of warm through, and then in goes the pasta, half a mug full of pasta water, boom, 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 into a bowl, Parmesan grated, those crispy capers go on top, olive oil, cracked pepper, dinner's on the table. And it's the sort of dish that you really, once you make it a couple of times, you are on autopilot, which is 
one of the chapters in the book, but you'll find yourself sitting down to the table and you won't even realise. You'll think, how did I make this? Who made this? Oh, yeah, I made this. And it's really good. And it's a really good dish as well if you've got young kids in the house because it's so full of umami and it's so full of this savoury kind of, some quite challenging flavours, but it is actually irresistible to eat. And you'll find them saying, I like olives, I like capers, I like tuna. And uh, you've got yourself an adventurous eater before you know it. And for Monaco Reads, Georgina Godwin spoke to Farah Nayari, an Iranian-born journalist and author based in London, who writes regularly on culture for the New York Times. She spoke to Georgina about her latest book, Takedown, Art and Power in the Digital Age. Farah, welcome to Monaco Reads. Thank you, Georgina, for the invitation. It's lovely to have you here. And this is a really, really important book, which I think uh, really uh, shines a light on some of the issues that we need to be looking at right now. But before we get on to it, <laughs> uh, I really want to talk about your, your background, because, of course, you're originally from Iran and, and you, you moved around various places as a child. Give us a flavour of that. Uh, yes, um I mean, I had a diplomatic dad, so that, that explains the moving around. Uh, I was actually born in London <laughs> and left um, very, you know, very young. I was a toddler. Uh, we went back to Iran and then over the years there were postings um, in Morocco and in Egypt. So I got to live there as well as Iran uh, before the revolution in 1978-79. And... Um, After that, we sort of moved to France because um, there were three of us daughters and, you know, for schooling reasons and everything. So that's where my family settled in Paris, um, where they still are. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I became a I studied and, and then became a journalist. And most of my my early journalism career was spent in Paris. And then and then I moved to Rome, uh, where I lived for three years, uh, happily, I must say. And then from there, I moved to London, where I now live. Although, and you were bureau chief for Bloomberg in Rome. Yes, I was. Yeah, I mean, Bloomberg didn't have a, a bureau in Rome when um, when they sent me down there. They had a, a quite a strong bureau in Milan. And so they said they knew I, I, had, I kind of spoke Italian. I sort of was self-taught and I, and I spoke some Italian. They said, do you want to go to Rome? And I didn't have to think about it very long to, <laughs> to say yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I ended up also, luckily, being a tenant in, a, in an extraordinary building, uh, the Palazzo Doria Pamfili, oh. uh, which is so large that they have many, uh, um, turned it into many flats and apartments that they rent out to people. And I was one of those lucky people. And I mean, you've, you've got this, this wonderful kind of merging of, of a political and an artistic brain. So for instance, I mean, you, you wrote political op-eds for the Wall Street Journal, but you also did exhibition reviews. Yes. I mean, um, as a journalist, when I started out, I was a reporter for Time magazine. That was my first gig, as it were. And um, for Time magazine, I was covering, you know, general news and covering politics quite a lot. You know, I was a young cub, but I was going along to election rallies and, and uh, you know, rallies by uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen and, and Mitterrand and, you know, all of that. And uh, just also writing about um, politics, French politics, but also French foreign policy, writing a lot about um, world affairs, Islamic fundamentalism, Algeria, you know, all of these things. So, so yeah, I mean, I was actually do have political training. I, I studied international relations originally. And so, yeah, but, but I'm 
kind of artistically inclined as a as a person because I started playing piano when I was about five and a half, and I studied it for about twenty years, and it nearly became a career. So, and I'm also a writer, and writing is not something you know that I just do for journalism. Writing is also, you know, something that I um, yeah that, that that springs out of me, I guess. And so there has always been this sort of artistic stroke cultural bent as well as a great interest and study of politics. And I also, I think the the attraction that I have for politics is very much to do with my father. Um, I um, engaged in a lot of father worship when I was a, a child and probably still do. Uh, I lost him two years ago, but um, the worship carries on. And uh, And he was, you know, he was a great Iranian diplomat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he was a, he was a great writer and and also a fine speaker and I I just you know he yeah you know you kind of look up to your parents and you sort of like in a way want to do what they do and I decided when I was ten or eleven I wanted to be a journalist which wasn't quite what he was doing but which allowed me also to come into contact with statesmen and you know politicians and personalities and. Uh, yeah, so that's where that comes from. Mm. Well, of course, both of those, the, the cultural and the political, come together perfectly in this book, Take Down Art and Power in the Digital Age. Now, every chapter goes through multiple examples of events, artists and works of art that are relevant to the chapter subject. It's mixed in with expert opinions and, of course, your own musings on everything. So I wonder, perhaps we'll start with Gauguin, because he was really the inspiration for this book. Yes, Gauguin was instrumental uh, in the birth of this book. What happened was in 2017, the Harvey Weinstein scandal happened. Hashtag Me Too really erupted on a global scale. And I went in to an art gallery to interview Kehinde Wiley, a great African-American painter and artist for the New York Times. And I was speaking to him and I said, so what's, what are you doing next? And Kehinde was being a bit coy and he said, OK, I'll tell you, I'm going to go to, to Tahiti because I love Gauguin and I just absolutely adore his painting. But I find him creepy as, and then he used an expletive starting with the word F. And I said, OK. And then he said, yeah, I want to go down there and sort of look at Gauguin again using a different sort of 21st century perspective. And that kind of really sank into my head because being Europe-based and being European-trained, having lived in Paris and Rome and and London, I wasn't really thinking along the lines of revisiting the art of the past or even the the art of the present through contemporary eyes. And um, that kind of got me thinking. It was sort of like a little worm that sort of went into my head. And then this Gauguin portraits show came up at National Gallery, and I went to my editor and said, I wonder how the, the National Gallery is going to handle Gauguin Because, of course, as we all know, Gauguin, you know, when he moved to Tahiti, he lived with 13 and 14-year-old girls, Tahitian girls. And he married them according to the local custom, even though he was already married in Europe to met Gauguin and had five children. So there was something a bit problematic going Mm. on. Mm. And, And exhibitions of Gauguin previously hadn't handled it or really addressed it. I got to the National Gallery and I and I was surprised to see on the introductory big wall text these lines about how Gauguin had sexual relations with 13, 14-year-old girls. And he, quote unquote, married a few of them and had and fathered children. And so the National Gallery very evidently was addressing 
the elephant in the room, which is, you know, Gauguin's, well, engagement with underage mm-hmm. girls. And, and so that would happen after that. Just And the story is that I was approached by a very smart young New York agent by the name of Ross Harris. And Ross said, you know, would you like to write a book sort of like re-examining art history and looking at, yeah, art through a 21st century lens? And I said, yes. So, mm. yeah. I mean, what's extraordinary here is that the National Gallery did decide to go ahead with the exhibition because what we're seeing more and more in, in recent years is actually things like that being absolutely just shut down. So I wonder if we could look perhaps at the history of censorship and exclusion of art. Well, censorship and exclusion of art has a very, very long history. I mean, you know, you have to go all the way back to the days of Byzantine, excuse me, pre-Byzantine sort of iconoclasm in early Christian tradition. I mean, images and icons have been attacked and blown up and smashed and, and bashed forever, forever and a day, really. You know, just think of Savonarola in Florence, who created this huge bonfire on which it is said that Botticelli tossed a few of his paintings, you know, because, you know, painting and imagery was uh, akin to sin. Moving forward, you just think of Hitler and the whole degenerate art and and his destruction or his, you know, yeah, I mean, I think there was obviously destruction of some works of art under Hitler and then Stalin and and on and on, you know, uh, for centuries, centuries and even millennia, I would say, people in power look to basically censor art and destroy it and take it down. And what my book explains is that Nowadays, with democracy in the West, we no longer have dictators and popes and, you know, monks and people like that just trying to burn things down. But we do have ordinary folks like ordinary citizens like you and I who can go on social media, start a campaign with a hashtag and attack something or go and demonstrate in front of it or call for its destruction or actually lead to its destruction, as has happened recently. Yeah, absolutely. The whole significance of social media, of citizen activists. Yeah. Um, but should should artists be cancelled because of their backstory? I mean, can we appreciate great works and not the person that created them? I think definitely yes. I mean, first of all, the book doesn't really use the, the term cancellation very often because the term cancellation is sort of like, it's a sort of biased term. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, loaded, isn't it's it? It's quite loaded. And I think that what, what I explain in the book is that art really did need to open up. I mean, art was very predominantly white and male forever forever. I mean, we're only now starting to see solo shows of extraordinary female artists. They never had these big solo shows before. Some of them are in their 80s and 90s, and some of them are long dead. I mean, I just was in Paris, and I went to see an exhibition of Joan Mitchell at the Fondation Vito in Paris, and she was paired with Monet. And this woman was an abstract expressionist. I found her paintings, which I had never seen in such great quantity, to be absolutely intoxicating. I was literally swooning, and this woman's art was just as good in my evaluation, but also others, as Jackson Pollock's. Mm -hmm. And yet you bring up her name, and people say, who? Yeah. 
Do you think that that's been deliberate through the ages? Have women been deliberately suppressed as artists or have they just not had the opportunity to practice art? I think it's been both, to be honest. I think uh, we have been living in patriarchal societies, even in the West, up until very recently. And I think that women, for a long time, of course, as we all know, you know, their primary duty was to find a husband. And that was the only way that you could actually accede to any, to comfort or wealth or anything really and you had to have children so those were kind of obligations and they were almost the uh, not almost they were the only way for women to accede to anything and there were many many women across the ages who were artists Mm. but where were they going to practice their art they didn't have an atelier and so they had husbands who were artists and oftentimes they would be in the atelier doing helping the the husband and possibly even doing some of those works Mm. but never getting credit for them so I think it's a combination of both. I think it really is also men in a variety of positions, whether it's spouses or or people in power, just really making sure that just keeping women silent. And of course, one way they were silent and very, very still was as artist models. And that brings us on to, to the idea of, of the male gaze, the high visibility of female nudes in art and really the, the question of, of consent and exploitation. Yes. Well, I mean, if we go and visit some of the greatest museums of the world, if you go to the Louvre or even National Gallery or the Metropolitan Museum, and you look at some of the collections that they have pre, I would say, pre-1900, but even pre-1945, there is just such a predominance of women, right? But they're naked women. (laughs) I mean, that's where women are absolutely dominant, is in, in the nude, and, uh, you know, there was this group in the late 80s, I think, um, called the Gorilla Girls who went around New York putting up posters, counting up the number of nudes in the Metropolitan Museum. And there was like a horrendously high number. And then it's just how many works by women and, uh, you know, in the single digits. Mm. So there have been a lot of naked models in art history. And as you say, you know, it raises the question, how did this sometimes underage woman, young woman or young girl, find herself to be naked in this artist's studio? What was the before and the after? How did this this girl get there? Mm. And what kind of, let's say, power dynamics went into that? I mean, it is very likely that, you know, these men were taking advantage of these girls in some way, shape or form. You look specifically, actually, at Manet's Déjeuner sur l'herbe. Tell us what you think when you look at that painting. Well, I've been looking at that painting forever and going to Orsay, the Musée d'Orsay, and, and and gazing at it. And again, I have this very kind of European, or I had this very kind of European education where you just accepted these artworks as being great. And it is an absolutely great work of art. And then I actually watched this extraordinary comedy show by Hannah Gatsby, Nanette. And she's actually an art historian by training. I mean, she studied art history. And what Hannah says is, you know, she brings up Déjeuner sur l'herbe or she brings up, you know, paintings of naked figures and naked nymphs. And and she says, oh, they just happen to be in the nude here, you know, gallivanting, (laughs) you know. And I sort of then it kind of had me, she got me looking at Déjeuner sur l'herbe in a different way. They're fully clothed men. It's a picnic. They're all wearing, they're so clothed, they're still in their coattails. And I think one of them or both of them are still wearing top hats. And then they're sitting there with this naked woman. The woman is stark naked and they're having a picnic. 
And then in the background, you see more sort of women, semi-naked or naked. And so you're just thinking, you know, seeing the world through through Hannah's eyes, sort of thinking, why is this woman naked and why are these men fully clothed? And is she, you know, for dessert? Yes, exactly. That's what I put in the book, you know, is she the dessert? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. So talking about marginalisation in art, of course, the whole Black Lives Matter has shone a spotlight on the fact that there's very little racial diversity, certainly within the Western canon. Absolutely. That's another issue with the Western canon is that up until again very recently, when you went to the major museums of the West, including MoMA, you would not see many women. There were hardly any women in the kind of trajectory in the sort of the lineup at MoMA, shall we say. Mm. You had modernism and futurism and this ism and that ism, and there weren't many women included in those, let's say, periods of art. And so therefore there were no women in the whole trajectory or the story of art as told by by MoMA or by people like Ernst Gombrich Mm -hmm. in his story of art. And so what's happened since... I would say, and I argue in the book, since 2017 and the Harvey Weinstein scandal and hashtag me too, and since the death of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, is that these great, huge social movements have forced everyone in every walk of life to rethink, including the art museum world. So my book, you know, it might seem like a sort of book for geeks and it has the the word art in it and people say, oh, I know nothing about art. It's actually a book about everyday life Mm. and society and politics and how, how our mentalities across the board have shifted and how that's affected what we see in museums and galleries. And do you think that that is commercially driven or is it real progress? I think it's both. I think it's both. And I think that to a large extent, there's been a convergence of both. In other words, when society shifts and politics moves and everyone feels like women need to be foregrounded, women need to be in positions of power and women artists need to be recognized and African-American or artists of non-European origin need to be recognized as well and shown and collected and recruited, when that happens, everyone starts doing it. And so, yes, in the museums, in the commercial gallery world, you may sometimes see like artists who perhaps don't deserve that kind of recognition. But that's sort of the price to pay with these pendulum swings, Mm. because as I argue in the book, and this is a revolution going on. It's a revolution. And revolutions happen through pendulum swings. And you swing from one extreme to the other. And so there are, of course, people who are in, in the spotlight who perhaps don't deserve to be if you really look at, look at it art historically. But then the pendulum at some point will swing towards the middle, we hope. And finally, on the curator on Monaco on Design, we spoke to Roxanda Ilincic. She discusses her emotive spring-summer 2023 collection, which she showed at this year's Serpentine Pavilion. I always say the Serpentine to me became like a home away from home, and particularly pavilions that are kind of part of my narrative and part of my, my whole design story. So... Every time a pavilion is designed um, subconsciously, because obviously I'm like halfway to creating my collection, and and subconsciously uh, whatever is happening here in this beautiful park finds its way into my collection as well. And this time connection was even stronger because Festergate 
designed this beautiful pavilion and, and dedicated it to his dad and and I'm also dedicating this collection to my dad and and it was really about symbolism of, of something quite dark and, and quite a lot about the death but also finding and trying to find the light out of it and and pavilion reflects all of that that there is the opening mm -hmm. in the ceiling through which you can feel the rain you can feel the tears you can feel the sunshine or or, or, or the gentleness so so all the somehow all those emotions were mixed in this collection it was really about emotions it, it wasn't so much about certain theme or yes i had an artist that i was inspired by but it was really about transcending those emotions that was, that were happening inside of me and i guess inside of Hester when he was designing pavilion and kind of channeling them into collection that's beautiful and more generally speaking how does art and your own background in architecture influence the way yeah. you approach clothing and color as well and then create this experience well i always try to to bring quite a lot of architecture and quite a lot of art into mm. my work it, it, it's really my background i used to study architecture and i also studied faculty of applied art so it's it's, it's all kind of connected all of this kind of you know education that I got back home in Serbia, I thought it's just inspiration for me. I'm not trying to bring it back into my work. It's simply something that, that I love. So it's it's a huge influence always. And I also kind of try to highlight female designers and female creators and female artists. So this time I look at the work of Swiss artist Pippi Lotti Rist who's actually an incredible feminist uh, artist, but also incredible colorist, like myself. The way that you use color, I mean, it's yes. always so strong, but in this collection in particular, it really stood out, because you, you had the blacks and then really saturated, beautiful color. Was yes. that also sort of part of the emotional journey of going yes, from dark definitely. to light? Because when I started the collection, uh, things were slightly different, so it was all bright colors and, you know, as usual. And then the, the, the nude started to become darker, so I started to bring the black color, which is very unusual for me, actually. And when you think about it, I very rarely have a black outfit. Um, shall I say never? <laughs> so, yeah, so this was, this was the first time. And also, I mean, since your last shows, there was always this consistency with like fluid silhouettes and things yes. that really I feel women want to be in and yes. feel comfortable in. Has that, are you thinking about that even more now, post-pandemic and post the last few years? Yeah. Has your outlook changed at all? I'm thinking, I'm just kind of re-emphasizing even more the things that I, mm. I was doing before. So, mm. so for example, I, I love to create pieces that women wear. I, I think one of, one of designers that finds just as much pleasure seeing women walking in an easy day dress uh, of mine than like somebody being on a red carpet or a dress being created for editorial. You know, I, I love to see my dresses having a second life with somebody that loves and adores them in a kind of everyday way so I, I always think about it as a woman as well like what would women like nothing to constrict them it's really about cocooning sheltering protecting i think those words are important to me well that's all we've got time for this week's edition of the curator the show is produced by arden heaton and presented by me fernando augusto pacheco join us again next week thank you for listening <laughs>